0: I thought this morning as a way of getting into our uh, message that I would just say a bit about the readings and why we do what we do here. Uh, The readings happen over a three-year cycle. So there's an A cycle, a B cycle, and a C cycle. We happen to be in C cycle in 2010. And what happens with these readings is that through the course of a year, you basically hear the story of the Bible. And over the course of the three years, you basically hear all the scripture in the Bible. So every year you're hearing the fundamental story of what it is that God's up to in his people. And the fact, the passage that we read this morning in Luke probably happened in a a synagogue service that actually wouldn't have been a lot different than what's happening here. A typical typical service in a synagogue when Jesus was doing what he was doing went something like this. We started this morning with Tony um, saying over us a very ancient prayer. Uh, In the Jewish church, they would start with the Shema. You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. They would say the Shema together. They would say some set prayers together. And then they had scripture readings, just like we do. They would read from the Torah, And then one of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And then they would read a passage from the prophets. And then someone would stand up to comment on it. And that's what we just saw Jesus do. Very interesting to think. And then they would close with a benediction, just like we do. So Shema, some set prayers, some set scripture readings. Somebody would comment on it. In in our readings today, Jesus is the one who commented on it. And then they would close with a benediction. Uh, One of the things that hit me a little bit sort of tongue-in-cheek humorously this week as I was thinking about this is that uh, evidently Jesus went to church. Did you catch that in the readings? Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. And I know we live in a day where church is not all that popular and you may have family and friends who wonder what the heck you're doing getting up at 7 30 or 8 in the morning to go to this funky new little weird church you know. Jesus went to church as was his custom, and he just happened to be there and, uh, and commented on this passage that was read from the scroll of Isaiah. So it makes me think when I thought of that, you know, I wonder what Jesus thought of church. I wonder if he went out some, you know, can you picture him sort of going out and going, I don't know, worship was a little off this morning. <laughs> I mean, like, do you picture, you know, sort of Jesus the consumerist, you know, Jesus, the religious consumerist. And it just made me start thinking about my own attitudes about church. And actually, I've had, I have had—I the wonderful rare privilege of, of having somebody like Eugene Peterson in my life. And Eugene's often said to me, Todd, church is not supposed to be good. Like, quit trying to make it good. Church is just a bunch of human beings who get together and sometimes it's going to be good and sometimes it's going to be awful and sometimes somebody's going to be mad and sometimes somebody's going to be sad and it just is what it is. Quit trying to make, you know, like the nicest restaurant in town, you know, as if, you know, if you can somehow serve up the best menu. Now, I got to admit, you know, I'm sure I'm not sure that penny is completely dropped, Because I still like it to be a nice atmosphere when you guys walk in and everything. But I think there's a good point there for those of us who happen to be alive at a time in which church is uh, not what you might say at the center of popular culture. But Jesus certainly went to church. All right, our passages this morning um, are meant to tell us this story. And, you know, we're still in Epiphany Uh, You know, the third week now uh, after the epiphany. And the epiphany, you know, is the unveiling. It's the revelation. It's the manifestation of something. And So these passages are trying to tell us a story. And this, by the way, people a lot smarter than I have said, is one of perhaps the greatest contributions of the Judeo-Christian worldview to all of humanity. And that is to see history, to see time as something that is unfolding that had a beginning from this person who stands outside of time, but he spoke what we think of now as the sort of you know, time-space continuum into existence. And so time now exists, and it's unfolding. Now, I don't think that means we have to like, argue against other worldviews who say that there are some cyclical elements to it. Maybe there are. But the point of view of the Bible is there's a story that's going on. And when Jesus reads that passage and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he's tying where he is in human history and in the revelation of God to what the prophets had promised. He's quoting Isaiah and saying, this is now fulfilled in your hearing. So can you see he's linking his present work, his thoughts, his motives, his attitudes, his sort of view of things, he's linking it to a history and saying that this is now happening. It is enormously important that we get story straight. Because what's often happened, at least I can, I mean, I can speak for myself. We're all still getting to know each other, so I'm not sure how much I can speak for all of you. But the evangelical world that I come out of has tended to te- uh, treat the Bible as a place to go get truths, sort of propositional truth or little theological tidbits. And again, I, I'm not putting that down. And then we would try to systematize it. There was okay. There was a time and a place for that. But I think this is true, and I hope this will somehow get deep in your heart. You honor the Bible best when you honor the form in which God gave it. And the form in which God gave it is a narrative. It's primarily a story. It doesn't read like a systematic theology. And the reason this is important is to get, to quote the title of a not-so-famous book, to get to a place where you have Christianity beyond belief, You have to have a story in which you can embody. Otherwise, you're just stuck with memorizing a few points of belief. But if it doesn't end up being a story that you can embody, the way Jesus saw himself embodying the story of Isaiah, did you catch what I just said? It's hugely important. Jesus is not simply saying, oh, I memorized this parcel of the scroll of Isaiah. He's saying, no, my self-consciousness is that I am living in this story. I am the embodiment of this. And of course, we catch in the Corinthians passage that Paul expects us to be the embodiment of the same ongoing story and how God has given us all gifts to do it. Now this, so, so, so catching story is hugely important because if we miss it, we, we just don't know what to do. One of my favorite ways to, to think about how important missing story is, I used to play a lot of golf, so I can picture this really easily. Uh, a golfer hit an errant tee shot, you know, one of those big slices to the right, and it rolled through a tree line right up against a really big anthill. You ever seen a really big anthill? And so, you know, he thought, well, you know, golf, I got to play it where it lies. And so the golfer gets over the ball, you know, and he takes this huge swing and he misses the ball. But ants and dirt go flying everywhere. Everywhere. And, you know, of course, now the ants are petrified, you know, and the golfer's angry. So he gets over there again, and he takes a huge swing and misses again. Ants and little ant body parts, and dust goes flying everywhere. And at that point, one of the sort of leader ants says, Hey, 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 follow me. And all the other ants go, Where are we going? And the leader ant says, On the ball, on the ball, get on the ball. If we don't get on the ball, we're all going to die. So, you see, not understanding uh, what's going on can actually be problematic. So, Nehemiah is is trying to tell us in, 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 in this unveiling of the story, the reason this reading appears in Epiphany is because these people were having an Epiphany. They had not heard their story in many, many years, and this is why they're listening so attentively and the Levites, the sort of scholars of their day, were instructing the people, which simply means they were giving teaching and guidance. Uh, think of it as sort of spiritual formation. They were saying, well, what this passage means, what this reading of the Torah means, is we're God's people. And this is what it means to be shaped or formed into God's people. And so the, the, the leaders, the teachers here in this passage, they're making God's story clear. It's like I'm, I'm like artistically challenged. You'll get to know that about me. And so often if I'm sitting watching TV with Debbie or we're at the movies or something, I have to elbow her and go, can you explain the plot to me? You know, like I'll say, is that the same lady who was in that other scene? Because I just sometimes don't get it. Like I would be hopeless at a movie like Avatar. I mean, just forget it. I just, uh, sci-fi, just I can't even, I, I can't even get close to it. Because I'm plot challenged. And these guys were Plot challenged. And, and the, the Levites are showing them this is what's happening. This is what's unveiling, and it produ- uh, un, what God's unveiling, and it produces deep conviction of sin in them. And, and so much so that the leaders have to say, look, because remember, anybody remember what sin is? Sin. To miss the mark. And so these or in Hebrew to transgress, to go your own way. And so these guys are going off the mark significantly. And when they see that, it breaks their heart. But the leaders say, hey, wait a minute. The backside of that is that God is calling you now and enabling you through the hearing of this story again to realign yourself with what he's doing. (coughs) Excuse me. So so they say there should also be some grace and joy and and goodness in this. Well, when we shift now to to the gospel reading, Jesus is doing something very similar. So you've got this ancient history. That Ezra, and and I love this, this a layman. I mean, think of Nehemiah as basically the mayor. So the mayor and a local priest get together and say, we've sort of rediscovered what this is all about. And they connect their present being, their present self-consciousness about what it means to be the people of God. They connect it with the Pentateuch, the Torah. Jesus now comes thousands of years later. Stands up in an ordinary synagogue service. Synagogues were basically what you had after the temple was destroyed. And so wherever there would be 10 or 12 or 15 Jewish families, something like that, they would would have synagogue services. So Jesus walks into something probably very much like this. He reads the scroll of Isaiah and says, I am self-consciously aware that through me, my birth, my virgin birth, my life, my teachings, my works, That I am the embodiment of what Isaiah prophesied about a new day coming in which what God, a day in which what God wanted to happen would happen. The poor would have the good news of the gospel preached to them. And And the poor for an ancient Jewish worldview was not simply people who lacked money. I mean, of course, it included that. But actually, when you read the poor throughout most of the Old Testament, you need to put an, an adjective on front of it. Because what they almost always meant were the pious poor. And by pious, they didn't mean those who go to church a lot. They meant those who secretly, in their deepest guts, hope for God to make a difference in their poverty. They weren't demanding things as sort of a human right. They had a deep longing that whatever was systemically broken in their society, that God would somehow fix it. That's why they were the pious poor. It wasn't it doesn't mean that there's anything godly about being poor. The pious part means that they were putting their hope in God. Now again, I only say this to be funny, tongue in cheek, meaning they weren't hoping for a bailout, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, that's not a political statement. I'm just simply saying that's not what they were hoping for. What made them the pious poor is that they knew this story. And they were hoping for it to be unveiled. And 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 Jesus sees that and says the good news of the inbreaking of the kingdom, which is going to fix everything, is primarily and first to this pious poor. And so what Jesus is really doing and saying... Uh, and, and this is what's so important about the role of teaching, right? The Levites stood up in the book of Nehemiah and did what? Taught. They instructed. And, you know, we've not talked much about this, but if you want to know why I'm doing what I'm doing right now, is because teaching is actually really important. And, and if for no other reason, here's why. We've never had a day in which more information was available, I mean, right now, I gave Marianne my my iPhone, but right now, Paul with his iPhone there in his lap could go on Google and find out just about anything he wanted to know within about 15 or 20 seconds. So when you don't have information, then information is really prized. But when you live in a day that actually overflows with information, what's prized is wisdom. What do we do about what we know? What's the meaning of what we know? What's the context for what we know? And this is why teaching is so important. It's why he did it. It's why Jesus did it. It's why I try to do it. Because human culture distorts reality. It's one of the aspects of sin. Human culture distorts reality. So for us right now, you know, there was a certain reality in Ezra's time. There was a certain reality that Jesus was confronting And when he stood up and read in the synagogue, and we have a certain reality today, and ours is something like this, that science, that the the combination of science, kind of an omniscience, you know, the science that can know anything, technology, which is now the way things are mediated to us, everything is mediated mediated to us these days, basically by technology. So the idea is that science, technology, and consumer-driven capitalism is going to somehow save us. Especially the notion of consumer-driven capitalism. That's the one that really, in the back of most people's minds, is what's going to save us. That there's some sort of invisible hand out there. And that if we can just find the right you know, balance of you know, a little bit of government intervention to make people play fair, but not too big, you know, you know, for, especially for those of you who are Republicans, not too big a government. And those of you who are Democrats may be thinking, no, 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 we need, you know, we need government because we're bad people. You know, whatever you think. That, that's the thing that we think, gosh, if we could just get those pedals just right, then there would be this invisible hand of capitalism that would somehow save us all. Now, I'm not down on capitalism. It's the best system I know of. I'm simply saying it's not going to save us in the manner, the depth in which we need saved. It might make a nice human society. I hope it does. But it's not what the Bible has in mind when the Bible thinks of being delivered, and that's what salvation means to be rescued to be delivered because here's the deal my friends every advance in knowledge is simultaneously a moral test and we keep failing them that's why we need saved as soon as cavemen whoever they were and cave women discovered fire wow we can warm ourselves Dude, I just tried something that works. We can cook animals. But I'll bet it wasn't very many months until somebody figured out how to make a torch. And I can now burn down your hut because you ticked me off. And you just fast forward to, we can now split atoms. I'll bet that was a very exciting moment where somewhere at MIT or something, somebody discovered how to split atoms. But if you got your iPhone on you, just Google Hiroshima. And think of ordinary Japanese families about what they might think about the morals of split atoms. Every advance in humankind, in human knowledge, is simultaneously a moral test. And we keep failing them. So even if Bernarke, Bernanke, how do you say his name? Geithner, even if those guys get it right... It'll only be another moral test because every advance in human knowledge functions that way. And that's why you still have left, no matter how much humanity might get this right, you still have left this need for a deliverance that is deeper, more meaningful, more internal, not strictly internal. It has external overtones to it, but it begins, as Jesus said, in our hearts. Now, what connects us finally to uh, the Corinthians reading is think of Jesus' story. At his baptism, who's there hovering like a dove over him? The person and work of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, who's ministering to him and helping him? The person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now our text says that Jesus went into Galilee. How? in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so for Paul, and, and this is, I think, a big thing for all of you to get. I think that for most of us in this room, again, for at least for all of us who came out of the evangelical world, Paul is Paul the Presbyterian. Because Paul gave us justification by faith, right? And that's sort of a Presbyterian doctrine, right? So it's so sort of Paul the Reformed Paul, Paul the Presbyterian. And and for all of you who are maybe a little nervous about this, I want to apologize, first of all, but I I would just be being less than honest if I didn't say it's more intellectually honest to think of Paul as Paul the Pentecostal. Paul did not carry around in him a self-awareness of I'm going to hand to the 16th century church a doctrine. Paul thought that what made everything work, what was core to everything God was doing in and through the church was the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It's unavoidable. And he's only doing what he saw his master Jesus do. Jesus claimed guidance from the Spirit. Jesus stood up and read that and said, I'm doing this under the guidance of the Spirit, and I'm going to go out and do what I do to release the oppressed and preach the gospel to the poor and announce the good news of the kingdom. I'm going to do that under the guidance of and animated and energized and fueled by God the Holy Spirit. And so when we come to the Corinthians passage, all that's really happening here is Paul saying, you picture Paul sitting around in a prison somewhere or, you know, in an ancient coffee shop and thinking, no, wait a minute. Uh, Jesus had a body of flesh and blood. Somehow that got animated and energized and stirred up and overflowing by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is now ascended. And Jesus said that, He was going to leave the spirit behind. How's this now working? And what Paul pictured was a human body, the aggregate of us. And then think of the whole cosmic church. He pictured actual flesh and blood. That God was continuing this big story that started in Torah and Genesis all the way through to the end in Revelation. That this was always going to involve an embodied people, a people who had a real body we're not dualists. Christians are not dualists. We are not the kind of people who think, well, the spirit's good, matter bad. That's not who we are. Matter's good. Matter's how we release the oppressed and preach the good news to the poor and do what we do without our bodies, without the capacity to be social, and you can only be social through your eyes, your mouth, your touch. Without the capacity to be social, how would you minister to anybody? So we can't be dualists. We have to somehow find a way to embrace and celebrate our bodies, our brains, our everything about us. And Paul tells us how to do it. And he basically says, here's what you can't do. You can't separate yourselves. You can't say, well, this little group here, they kind of like evangelism, and they're kind of on their own thing, and this little group of people here, they, they really like social justice, so they're sort of their thing, and this people over here, they like intercession, and that's sort of their thing, and these people over here, you know, they like prophecy, and that's sort of their thing. Paul's saying that's the one thing you cannot do. You cannot separate, and you, nor can you. I, I really have come to not appreciate single-issue churches. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what I mean? What's a single-issue church? Like, we're the church against abortion. Or, you know, we're the church of prophecy for the latter days, right? I mean, you can't do a single-issue church because Paul said if the whole church were an ear, well, where would be the sense of smell? But he said, nor can you divide yourselves. Here's what Paul's picturing. That somehow through the person and work of the Holy Spirit, giving gifts to each one of us and a gift mixed to each one of us, that God had somehow composed all that. He somehow put it all together so that it formed a body. And this really goes together with, you know, our plaque back there when we pray for lost people and those outside of faith. You know, it says back there that God is calling all of us to bring out the God colors of the world. Have you read that plaque? That's what he's doing. He's making us a light. And that as light, we bring out the God colors of the world. Well, that happens through God has put the God colors in his church. I love the way Peterson gets this in the message. He says, you can see easily enough how all this thing works by looking no farther at your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many body parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit. Now, well, I've got to stop myself there. Did you notice he doesn't say that's how it is with the church? When you think wisdom, prophecy, generosity, hospitality, administration, when you think that stuff, you cannot think church. It's too low of a vision. You have to think I am a manifestation of the body of Christ. I'm not a manifestation of Holy Trinity Church. I'm not a manifestation of Anglicanism. We are together a manifestation of the body of Christ, not simply church. Paul doesn't here have in mind a picture of somehow a church working together. It includes that, but you, just, you can't reduce it to that because what Paul's picturing again is the ongoing work of Jesus through human beings. So it's exactly the same way as Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life. Do you hear the epiphany in that? We, this story is being revealed to us. And so now we're leaving beside our partial and piecemeal lives. <clears throat> and this is what Paul has in mind when he says, you can say no more Greek or Jew, slave or free because in their culture those were the two major social divisions jew or greek slave or free and so for paul that's not an exhaustive list it's a giant representative list that says you can no more in congregations like this divide yourself on the political spectrum of left and right you can no longer divide yourself by men and women <clears throat> You can no longer divide yourself by economic classes. It doesn't work. We're all one in this. Now, that doesn't mean we actually never divide. Like, who did we just send out of the room? Youth. It just means that when we divide, please catch this. Because someday one of you is going to have a vision for women's ministry. Fine. Someday one of you guys are going to have a vision for men's ministry. Fine. I'm not down on that. Here's what I'm saying. It's something way more important than that. It means that when we divide, we know, A, it's temporary, and B, it's focused on our being together, because we are fundamentally a community. See, the vision of Paul simultaneously destroys totalitarianism. Think Mao or whatever you want to think of. You know, think of China today, trying to make everything one. The vision of Paul destroys the myth of totalitarianism. We all go, yeah, yeah, that's right. We don't like that Mao guy. (laughs) But here's what else the vision of Paul destroys. 21st century individualism. And says that there is no you apart from community. See, here's the way this really works. I mean, I've been at this for a long time, so just sort of trust old Uncle Todd here. Here's the way this really works. A healthy community celebrates all of your diversity. And healthy individuals use that individuality to build the community. And when you got that going, you have the vision of Paul. It breaks the power of totalitarianism, but it also breaks the power of a kind of independence that says, well, I can't actually say it in public, but, you know, blank community. You know what I mean? I don't care about community. I care about me. This is worth writing down. Rights over responsibility is destroying human culture. To put it more precisely, rights over responsibility is destroying the America we've known. And that's not what Paul has in mind. What Paul has in mind is I'm an ear. And as an ear, I'm responsible to you guys. I'm how you hear, you're a mouth you're responsible to us. That's how we speak. That's what Paul has in mind. It's not about rights. It's not about human rights. It's not, you know, I I as a woman have the right to do this, or I as a man have a right to do that. Well, no, what Paul has in mind is how can we as one body pick up this huge responsibility that was announced in Genesis, spoken about by the prophets, picked up by Jesus, and said, I'm now doing this, and I'm making a body that will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to pick up that, and through the gifts of the Spirit, and through God giving us character, as in Galatians 5, giving us power and authority and animating and energizing our lives, Paul's now picturing a body of human beings who, through the power and the authority and the gifts and character of the Spirit, will continue to do this. That, my friends, is a responsibility before it's a right. You will find your rights as a human being most flowering, most coming to fruition, being most self-satisfying in the good sense of that term when you make yourself responsible to others under God. You will be more alive and more human than you could have ever dreamed. Because that's God's plan. It's what he's doing. And it's what Jesus announced. And Paul said, here's how you get in on it. You get in on it through the work, person, activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.